We begin today our series entitled Awaiting the Messiah as we look at the majestic book of Isaiah, which is found on page 566 in the Bibles in front of you. So if you have one of those black Bibles, turn to 566 and uh, we can look there at Isaiah. Now, it is ridiculously hot and it is only going to get hotter. The good thing is that we're going to be covering 37 chapters of Isaiah. Which means you guys are going to be actively engaged, flipping around from verse to verse to verse to verse to verse. So, if you are turning there, hopefully you'll be able to stay awake. Um, We cover the entire book of Isaiah in three sermons. The first is entitled, Awaiting the Messiah Who Reigns, which is today's sermon, chapters 1 to 37. The second is, Awaiting the Messiah Who Suffers and Serves. That's chapters 38 to 55. And then the last sermon is Awaiting the Messiah Who Conquers, chapters 56 to 66. Um, Isaiah ministered around 750 to 700 B.C. And uh, he, this book was, and all of his prophecies were to leave us very much so facing the corridor, waiting for Christ to come down. To enter into it. We are, we are awaiting the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And those of you familiar with Christianity, you know Christ means anointed one, the Messiah. Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of the kings mentioned there in verse 1. You can go ahead and take a look there. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which you saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, some of these kings reigned as co-regents or co-kings, basically. But the main kings addressed in the book are Ahaz and then Hezekiah. Um, by the way, if you go ahead and open up your bulletin, you'll see there that uh, you have a outline, an outline of all 66 chapters. Uh, now, this outline is not inspired, but nevertheless, I found it helpful, so I included it in there. I hope that as we go through Isaiah, you guys will actually take the time to pull out this uh, outline, set it aside your Bible, and then just go ahead and read those sections that I'll be preaching through, or the section I had just preached on. And that'll help guide your reading and your understanding of the book. And frankly, you know, these prophets, especially the larger ones, can be a little bit intimidating. But with an outline, here all of a sudden there can be greater clarity uh, brought to understanding this truly epic book. Few things today are genuinely epic, though many claim that they are. Isaiah is an epic book. So I strongly encourage you, you know, if you want to form little groups of people that you are uh, hanging out with and just simply take turns reading a chapter and just read through all 37 chapters together uh, in one sitting this week, I think that would be a fantastic use of time. For us to understand Isaiah's message, we need to understand the dark backdrop from which Isaiah's message came to beam. And this was an incredibly dark time for God's people for one reason, because of the politics of the, of the era. Israel as a nation had, befo- had been formed by the time Isaiah had prophesied. And in fact, about 200 years prior, God's one people had split into two. And so you had the northern kingdom, known at that point in time as Israel, also known as Ephraim, so one tribe to kind of signify the whole Ephraim, and Ephraim's capital, capital was Samaria. That's the northern tribe, the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. So regularly throughout the book, as Isaiah is prophesying against both 
the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You'll hear Ephraim for the north and then uh, Judah for the south there. Because of their own sin, they could never recover the glories of the kingdom that was present underneath the reigns of David and Solomon. And so therefore, they were clawing for stability. I mean, just imagine yourself, right? If your stability had been cut out underneath you, whether you no longer have an income, whether you no longer have a job, whether you no longer have a family member, you, you, you want stability in your life, right? That's what's going on in Israel's life. They would go on to experience greater instability because at the time when Isaiah prophesied, a growing kingdom uh, continued to uh, gain power. That is the Assyrian superpower. So think, you know, the Tigris and the Euphrates. If this area is the area of Palestine here, you have the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. Around that whole area was the kingdom of Assyria and it was growing big time. It was looming over uh, Israel and then the southern kingdom Judah. Now, if a smaller kingdom wanted to survive, you know, what are your worldly options? You could, number one, go crawling in submission to the superpower. Number two, you could take on the superpower yourself and probably get squashed like the ant they think you are. Or number three, you could form alliances with other nations in effort to at least stand a chance against the growing superpower. And that's what the northern kingdom of Ephraim did. They decided uh, to go on and partner with their next-door neighbor, Syria. And they thought that be, in doing so, those two kingdoms together would stand a better chance of battling this massive uh, army of Assyria. And not only that, though, if you want to even gain more strength, more people to your army, well, how do you add people to your army? You either go recruit or you force people by the sword to join your army. That's what the northern kingdom of Ephraim and Syria did. They marched down to Judah and tried to force them to join their coalition. The first time they were not able to take Jerusalem, but the second time they actually got to them. Go ahead and flip over to Isaiah chapter 7. And look how Judah reacts when they hear that Syria is in cahoots with Ephraim. Chapter 7. It says there, Go ahead and look at two. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, that is the king of Judah, and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So here, obviously, the shaking is they're trembling before this great superpower that's kind of marching on, uh, or, or I should say, not the superpower, but uh, Syria and Ephraim are marching down towards them to force them to join their coalition. You know what Ahaz does as a result? Southern kingdom being pressured by the north because here comes Assyria, going to go squash them all. The southern kingdom, Judah, Ahaz, evil king, decides to say, oh, well, in order to resist them, I'm going to go and join these big guys. I'm going to go and ask the biggest bully on the block to come and be my friend. And so he partners up with Assyria. Now this works out to be a very, very bad decision politically for the southern kingdom. Let me talk about this in a little bit. But you know what their biggest problem was? It was not Assyria. It was not Syria and Ephraim. God's people were in darkness because they didn't trust God, their creator. That's the issue here. They did not trust God, their creator, their sustainer, their protector. 
You see, God alone was to be king, and of course he was. He was the only show in town. Being creator, he was the only one with the legitimate rights to the throne. Because of sin, we back up here, because of sin, man had rejected God. But nevertheless, God had chosen, all in his grace, to choose and to build a kingdom upon Abraham and then his descendants. And to them, to those people, he revealed himself and pledged his faithfulness. He pledged deliverance, his love, his righteousness. All they needed to do was to trust and lean on him. This was the option for God's people. Not those other three options. This was the option for God's people, but they refused it. They trusted in the world's ways. Here are some ways in which they trusted in other nations. We're still looking at the darkness of the backdrop that Isaiah's message came to being. Here are the ways in which they, they trusted. They trusted in other nations. Ahaz, evil king of Judah, um, trusted in other nations, and he grovels to Assyria looking for deliverance. So you don't have to turn there, but 2 Kings 16 speaks of, of what happened there. Ahaz says to Assyria, right, the biggest bully on the block, I am your servant. I am your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now, if you know the Psalms, for example, you know that this sounds very much like a prayer that ought to be prayed to God. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. But yet he calls, grovels to Assyria, come rescue me. He pleads for deliverance from a, from a pagan king. But God was their father who had graciously, in his love, adopted Israel, all of God's people. But here, God's people are refusing their adoption and rejecting God's love. And they go on and they sell themselves, they throw, the, throw away their sonship to Assyria, to slavery to Assyria. That's exactly what Ahaz does. 2 Kings 16 says that he goes into the temple of the Lord. And you know, all those things that God had told Israel to use, to, to, to build in effort to worship him, he takes them all and gives them freely to Assyria. Freely to Assyria. Those things were supposed to be set apart for God's holy use, but apparently Ahaz, this wicked king, goes to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and says, here, they are now set apart for your use. Do whatever you want with them. So they're trusting in foreign nations. But they also trusted in foreign idols. Uh, naturally, you know, if you submit yourself to a foreign nation you're going to submit yourself to their gods. So God's people were given to idolatry. And Isaiah, through the book of Isaiah, talks about this regularly. Uh, Ahaz, for example, this is what he does. He, he, um, Assyria eventually goes and takes over Damascus or Syria. And then Ahaz goes up there and he basically consults them on their, on their forms of worship. He says, oh, well, what are you guys doing out there? And what he does is he brings them down to his kingdom and implements those pagan forms of worship. So they're, they're, they're giving themselves to worshiping other gods and embracing the other forms of worship. So they're, they are trusting in foreign nations. They are trusting in foreign idols. They're also trusting in themselves. In their own wisdom and words, they became a law unto themselves. No wonder Isaiah decried their unrighteousness in 10 verses 1 and 2. He says they're iniquitous decrees 
They are oppressive laws and various other injustices there. No wonder Isaiah pronounced in chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who are wise in their own eyes. God's people are guilty of becoming a law unto themselves or giving over into themselves. Turn to 28, verse 9 here. Uh, th- this verse captures Ephraim's flippant attitude towards God's words. 28, verse 9. Now, e- Ephraim, they were trusting in themselves. They were really proud. This is the northern kingdom. Uh, certainly the southern kingdom was proud too, but here he addresses the northern kingdom. And here Ephraim speaks sarcastically. You know, you can imagine them standing around their war tables in their situation rooms trying to figure out how is it that we can go and conquer Judah and then stand against the seer. They are deeply embattled against the, the times of the day. And, and this is what Ephraim says, 29. To whom will he teach knowledge? That is, you know, the prophets of God, the people of God. And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those who are taken from the breast? You hear what he's saying? We're not children anymore. Go have your little play date somewhere else. Alliances need to be drawn. War plans need to be drafted. He goes on for uh, God's word. For God's word is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Literally, these words are za 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 za, ka 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 ka. It's like the Hebrew equivalent of blah 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 blah. That's what they think of God's words. Blah 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 blah. Little kids talk. Go and have your own play dates, God. We have larger things to settle. They trust in themselves. They were a proud people. Thus God determined, chapter 2, verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In chapter 9, verses 9 to 11, he speaks how God had disciplined Israel and brought down their walls, probably through an earthquake there, but in the people's arrogance and pride, they thought it was no big deal. They said, oh, no problem. The bricks have fallen. We'll go ahead and dress our city with more decorated bricks. The wood that we use, no problem. They cho- it got chopped down. We'll use better timber to build. Our future will outshine our past and present. In their hardness of heart, they actually thought that that was a good solution. Hearing what Israel trusted in ought to make us check where we put our trust, doesn't it? When we want something, think of the thing that we're fighting for, there's always something we fight against. And so we too make coalitions. We make allies. We give our trust to other people. So perhaps you might want security, and so you're fighting personal poverty. So therefore you ally yourself with your career, right? You ally yourself with the pursuit of money because money equals freedom from a hard life. Just think about it, you know, those of you who might have grown up with, with uh, finances that are, all, you, you know, your family's always strapped for cash. Or perhaps some of you know, you know, perhaps your families have gambled away your whole entire life as my father's father did. It's a temptation to ally yourself with things that so-called hold out the hope of security. Another one, perhaps you crave to be known. 
Maybe you fight a war against insignificance, and so therefore you ally yourself with anything and anyone who gives you attention. Who gives you position. Perhaps that's why your hopes are in a boyfriend or girlfriend. Perhaps that's why you find yourself flirting with people even though you know you ought not to. What people hold out to you, maybe, is a promise of significance, a promise to be known. Perhaps that's why maybe your hopes are in your spouse, or having children, or being the best salesman in your company, or even a published author, or even the President of the United States. Significance. Perhaps you want morality, and so therefore you battle against immorality and the badness of the world. You therefore ally yourself with morality, being a good person. We could go on and on here. Perhaps you war against guilt. You've got so many skeletons in your closet that you don't know what to do with, and so you ally yourself with working your guilt away. Maybe even hurting yourself, as if that makes everything right. For Israel, they wanted, it seems, to do what they wanted. So they fought physically, spiritually, anyone and everything that hindered them. They wrongly judged the problem to be Assyria, didn't they? They wrongly judged the problem even to be God's law. We have misjudged the problem too. And therefore we have allied ourselves with the wrong solution. God though says that the ultimate problem is sin. That's what Israel had missed. And that's what oftentimes we miss. And his coming judgment of it. But he calls us all to ally him ourselves with him who delivers and saves. I mean, that's what's amazing about uh, this first 37 chapters in the whole book of Isaiah here. Our ultimate problem is sin and the God who judges it. But then God himself says, ally yourself with me and I will give you deliverance, forgiveness, salvation. The people's sin is a problem. Look there in verse chapter 1, verse 2. The sin of the people is clearly the problem. That's why Isaiah makes this his opening charge here, or really God speaking through Isaiah. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. That is everything. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. But they have rebelled against me. So you see that there? Assyria, Ephraim, Syria, Egypt, not the main problem. Look at verse 4 there of chapter 1. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Because of their sin, because of their lack of gratitude, because of their pride and arrogance, God views the people's wisdom as Worse than a common farm animal. So look there in verse 2 again. The ox knows its owner. The donkey its master's crib. So, So even those animals know where to go back. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Spiritually here, this is lights out over Israel. So what is God's response? What did God want his people in the world to know through the prophet Isaiah... First, God will judge, so repent. Second, God will save, so trust. So first we looked at the darkness of the situation. 
Now we look here at what God wanted them to know in the darkness. That is, God will judge, so repent. God will save, so trust. Let's look at the first one. God will judge, so repent. Look how God moves to judge his own people, his own children here. Look at 526. Here the Holy One of God lights a fire signal. Think epic, okay? He lights a fire signal. This is what it says. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And just track along with those, those verses, right? Their strength, that is the nation's strength, is unstoppable. Their weapons of war are sharp. Their horses' hooves are like granite. Their chariots' wheels are like the devastation of tornadoes. And then he gives us a picture of the nations being like lions roaring and growling, standing over their prey and to seize it. And then the growling of the lions turns to the growling of the ocean. Picture is Israel on a boat entering into the ocean's growling. You get this foreboding sense that the darkness is coming and Israel looks back to the land in verse 30. Look there. If one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. Here the people of God are thrust into darkness. Did you notice who God uses to judge them? His very people? He uses the nations that they trusted in. Interesting, isn't it? God says there that there will come a time when their worldly hopes, everything that they hoped in, the thing they hoped in and their hopes themselves would then go on and cave in on themselves. And this happens with us, doesn't it? God brings us to the end of our own worldly hopes. Imagine having allied yourself, let's just say, with security, thinking that that'll bring a happy life. Whatever security may be for you guys. Let's just say money say your retirement account, let's say your career. And then you get a really terrible, terrible bad health diagnosis. All those things that you just put all of your hope in, imagine stacking up all your cash, you know, you have $10, you got $10 billion. Imagine stacking it all up and your, your body is wasting away. You know that there's only a limited amount of time. Whatever it is you put your trust in, you, know, you might stack up your money, you might stack up your diplomas, you might stack up your children, look towards your job, look towards cars and pleasure, and you cry out to them, save me! It's futile. What can all the money in the world do? Does not Steve Jobs knew this, who had pancreatic cancer, billions of dollars, one of the richest men in the world, and yet all it can do is maybe... Speed up the process of getting some new organs. From God's perspective, our idolatry and the giving away of our trust to things that are untrustworthy is absurd. Because we insist, because Israel insists, you want to make an alliance with other countries, God says, go ahead. He goes on and says, The protection of Pharaoh will turn to your own shame. The shelter in the shadow of Egypt will turn into your own humiliation as they will go on and betray you. The very things they trusted in will go on and cave in on themselves. But it isn't God's own people that God judges. He judges the other nations as well and in the same manner. So in chapters 13 to 27, if you pull out that outline there, you see that these are largely judgments against the surrounding nations. Within this section, there are basically three turns of prophecy. 
And with each one, Isaiah pushes into the future. So in chapters 13 to 20, first he addresses his present time. Then he, go, pushes, then he pushes into the future a little bit more in chapters 21 to 23, the remoter future. And then in 24 to 27, he pushes to the end, the end times. And at that point in time, there's judgment all around, climaxing in chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. The Lord shall be... The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. You know, if you are not familiar with the Bible, which many of us aren't, you may ask with a little bit of contempt, why does God judge? Why does God judge? It's an interesting question. For some reason, we ask that about God. But usually, you know, we're not asking the question about those whom, uh, those whose authority we have already recognized. So take uh, SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States of America. Do we ever ask uh, something like, why does, why do they judge? Why does it judge? We, we don't, right? Typically, we don't. We might ask if their judgments are right and just, but we're not asking, why do they judge? Because we already recognize their authority. We already recognize their sovereign authority. Where authority is recognized, we expect judgment. We anticipate judgment where authority is recognized. Where injustice is, therefore, we even long for judgment. And we know this. In the news, right? let's say we hear that there's a war criminal who's being on trial for murdering millions of people. There's something inside of us, some sort of God-given instinct to desire and long for justice to be happened. Justice to be made. For a verdict to be given. And for the guilty to pay for what they've done. For sovereign authority is recognized. We expect judgment. But where sovereign authority is questioned, challenged, we have contempt for God and His judgments, right? The Bible says that because of our sin, we all have contempt for His judgment. Ultimately, it's because we want to wear His crown. Now, what that looks like is really becoming a law unto ourselves. I mean, we're not exactly in Israel's position, so we're not tempted to uh, identify ourselves with other nations. It's really to become a law unto ourselves. And so, therefore, listening to ourselves, we think of God's word as blah, 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 blah. It makes no difference to us. And so we draft up our own declaration of independence, declare our own sovereign rule, we trust in what we want, and we live by our own wisdom. The problem is, God is the only sovereign. This is inherent in Isaiah's title for God over and over and over again. You hear Isaiah calling him the Holy One of God. That is the separate one. That is the one who in his sovereignty sits on his throne in purity and all moral majesty one can ever imagine. He is the separated one. Look at the vision God gives to Isaiah. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1. It says there, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, 
It's entirely fitting that he's going to talk about a king on a throne because all these other kings are thinking about, gosh, which king is greater? Which king uh, should I submit to? Should I listen to my own rule? rule? Why, yes, that is a good thing. And Isaiah just says in the beginning of Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up in the train of his robe. That is his majesty, his glory. Filled the temple. And even the heavenly beings in God are ministering to him and proclaiming his sovereign authority. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So there we've got to ask, you know, if we're in Israel's situation or even our own selves, even if we're calling ourselves king or giving away that authority to other people, we have to say, are the hosts of the earth powerful? Well, sure they are. But this God is over them all. If God is the sovereign God, then it is dangerous for for us to trust in anything else other than him. To not be allied to God is to be against him. And if God is the sovereign, to seek ultimate protection in anything other than him is offensive to him. Because they are not him. To trust in things that have less power than he does, less wisdom than he does, less grace, less justice, less righteousness, less love is an absurdity. That's what God tells Isaiah. So turn over to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 7 and 9. This should be one page over, or if not, uh, right next door to Isaiah chapter 6. So in chapter 6, God has revealed that he was, right, he's on the throne, and there it says that the foundations shook. In front of his glory. The proclamation that he is who he is. And the foundations of the earth shook. And the heavenly beings are worshipping God. But here in chapter 7, God's people are quaking. Not before God. Not before a grand vision of God. But because of other men. Judah hears that the northern kingdom and Syria were coming down. Marching down to destroy them. And the men of Judah were flapping around in desperation. Like leaves in a forest in a whirlwind. You know what God says to his people? Verse 7. Simply put, this coalition that's coming to get you, he says there, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Now, in verses 8 and 9, it's important to see God's logic here as he offers stability to the people. Right? Okay, so verse 7, it shall not come to pass. He says, don't worry. You're flapping in front of the wrong people, he says. Verse 8, he says, The head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin, a man. Verse 9, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is a son of Ramaliah, a man. Of course, what's the implication for the people of God? Who is the head of Judah? Who is the head of Jerusalem? Is it not the God of Isaiah chapter 6? Holy, holy, holy is this God. Forget allying ourselves with our jobs, other men, your own wealth, your own strength, your own wisdom. Forget that if you want to battle the problems of men. Forget trusting in the stuff of the world to deliver when the one to whom we must reckon with is a holy God. If sin is our problem, and God says we must face him, why in the world would we not seek security and safety 
in him. You know, there's a story that illustrates everything that Isaiah has been speaking about up till now. So chapters 1 through 35, this first section. Particularly, he speaks about this illustration, speaks about the absolute foolishness of seeking security in secondary things, weaker things, derivative things that are from God, but not God himself. And he encourages us to place our trust in God. So turn over to 36 and 37. Everything he's been speaking up from 1 to 35 reaches a climax. You could think of it that way in this illustration in 36 and 37. And from it, I pray that we learn to trust in God alone. These chapters tell of when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invaded Judah during the reign of Hezekiah. And you see that there in 36 verse 1. Uh, If you're not there, you can turn over there. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So the very ones people, uh, the very ones God people allied with, they are caving in on themselves, right? Upon God's people. Their hope is turning around to bite them. Sennacherib sends his high-ranking military official called a Rabshaka. That sounds menacing. The Rabshaka. And there the Rabshaka delivers the threats and the taunts of all of Assyria. If uh, the way I think about the Rabshaka is, you know, if um, Assyria is the main kingdom, uh, the Rabshaka is the hatchet man. Or if Sennacherib were the lone shark, the Rabshaka would be the collector, the bone breaker, the one to deliver the news, the one to threaten, the one to speak on behalf of his boss. Here, Assyria surrounded Jerusalem. Assyria goes up, the Rabshaka goes up to Hezekiah's officials in the sight of all Jerusalem's men. And speaking in Hebrew, the Hebrew people's language, obviously, he launches this taunt, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt. So what happened there is Assyria comes and uh, Judah now all of a sudden realize they're in trouble. So they want to form an alliance with Egypt to get out of Assyria's bonds of slavery. In the Rob Shaka says, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken rod of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. So he too knows that What they are trusting in will come around and bite them. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not this God whom Hezekiah himself went against by tearing down the places of God's worship? Now there, what that basically means is Hezekiah was actually a good king. And he was removing down these other altars of false worship to God. But uh, the Rabshakeh doesn't understand this, most likely. He thinks the more places they are of worship, the better. But anyways, he he nevertheless sees that there's somehow diminishing uh, strength there in Hezekiah's kingdom. And what happens next is that Hezekiah's officials, knowing that this might further discourage the troops, they respond to him in verse 11. Please speak in Aramaic, but not in Hebrew, lest the people, our people, hear it and lose heart. The Rob Shaka sensing weakness and discouragement, an open wound there. He sticks his finger in it all the more and boasts in verse 12, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. 
This is satanic, isn't it? But the Rabshaka makes his worst mistake in equating the Lord with all the other gods of the nations. Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? So he's doing this roll call, basically, in a condescending way. Where are the gods of Shepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Whom among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So this taunt is getting stronger and stronger. He's getting more arrogant as the time goes on. As the story goes, the Rabshaka leaves to join Sennacherib against, uh, to squash another rebellion there. After some time, he sends a letter. He sends messengers. This time he goes straight after Hezekiah and straight after the head of Judah, that is God. Verse 10. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Harans, uh, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath? Where is the king of Arpad? Where is the king of the city of Shepherbaim? Where is the king of Hena? Or the king of Eva? Where are the gods? Where are the kings? But God will only be tested for so long. And so he makes his judgment known. But he doesn't say, I am going to bring you down immediately. He has every right to, right? Declare this, I will bring you down. But he doesn't do that. He gets to it eventually. But the first thing he wants the great Sennacherib, the menacing Rabshakeh to know, and all of Assyria to know, is that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Look there in 23 to 25. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height and its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. But look what God says next. To all the strength of Assyria, they're thinking that they're drawing up Egypt with the soles of their feet. Verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like the plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is gone, grown. That sovereign rule. The Rabshaka's taunt, where are the gods, where are the kings? And God just simply says, here I am. I have done it all. The very things they boasted in, God says, I determined it all. Look at the conclusion there in 20 and 29. 
I know you're sitting down and you're going out. You're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back from the way by which you came. You see the absurdity there. God's creation is boasting in themselves against God, their very creator. Look there in 37 verse 36. This is what God does. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. For Sennacherib, God did indeed take him by the hook and the bit. The bit. God had sent him back to his land. And there all the Assyrian pomp and all the Assyrian pride and arrogance welled up in Sennacherib's sons' hearts. And they assassinated him. Look at verse 38. They assassinated him in the house of Nisroch, his god. You see the irony of Assyria's taunt now? Where is your god? Where is your king? When we recognize God's sovereign rule, what else would we expect of God who loves righteousness and justice than for God to judge his people's sins, whether Israel's or Assyria's? The logical conclusion, therefore, for all who trust in lesser things is for us to be allied with God through repentance. And this is illustrated for us in what Hezekiah does with, when the rod shakah taunted Judah and Judah's God. He, Hezekiah goes into he goes to Isaiah asking to hear the word of the Lord in thirty seven fourteen. Go ahead and turn there. It said that he went up to the house of the Lord and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Now listen to his confession. O Lord of hosts. Same thing that was acknowledged in Isaiah chapter 6. The host, the one who has sovereign military might and strength over everything. God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone, all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Verse 20. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. That's repentance. That's trusting in God to be the very things that God is. The same thing happens in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 there. Go ahead and flip there. After beholding God in all of his glory, his temple filling the, the whole entire universe, his glory filling the whole entire universe, you know what Isaiah says? He hears the declaration of who God is. The foundations of the earth tremble. And Isaiah does too. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's a confession. His sinfulness before a holy God, a holy and righteous God, and he is repentant. It is a wonderful thing that God shows us what repentance looks like, and then shows us that it is possible. That it is possible. True repentance, though, friends... Involves not only recognizing wrongdoing, but recognizing wrongdoing before this particular God and worshiping this particular God and trusting and leaning on Him and not other things. Friends, the truth is we could go on building our lives with things that are not God. We could find our, our lives intermingling and even becoming like the very things we trust in only to have them cave in on us to destroy us 
We could go on in our rebellion to be a law unto ourselves and to reject the law of God. Law of God. But as these prophecies against Israel, Egypt, and all of God's people remind us and show us, one day we will all face God. And if we are not allied to him, he indeed will bring us low, and it will be too late. God will judge, therefore we ought to repent. Well, if God were only a judge who judges, right? If God were only a God who was not righteous, we might ask what the purpose of repentance is. Is it simply falling in line with a tyrant of a king like Sennacherib, except he is the cosmic ruler, just as evil, just as unrighteous? The answer is no. You know, in these revelations here, God is a righteous God who not only judges, but also saves. So submission to him doesn't mean becoming a slave to him, but becoming his beloved child. So he saves. Therefore, we ought to trust. This is point number two. We saw the darkness, and now we're seeing what God wants Isaiah to tell the people. God will judge, therefore repent. Now God will save, therefore trust. The first two points, you know, we're 45 minutes, so we can expect to be done in another 45 minutes. Just kidding. This one is much shorter. Sort of. The last thing we look at today, Isaiah wants us to know God will save, therefore you, we should trust. In Isaiah chapter 6, you know, uh, we ought not really be surprised that Isaiah confesses. We all, even to our very own earthly authorities, our gut instinct oftentimes is to confess. Oh, sorry we did this, sorry we did that. And it can be the most menial things ever, and we're confessing for those things. So we understand here that towards authority, we understand confession. What is shocking is what God does. He forgives him. God commands his heavenly being to take a burning coal from the altar of sacrifice where atonement happens, where forgiveness is given, and then go. the seraph touches the lips of Isaiah with it, and purification happens. Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Wiped away, that is dealt with. So not only is there judgment with God, but there is indeed forgiveness. There is atonement and hope. And all at God's initiation... And so the prophet of God was not only to announce judgment, but salvation as well. So flip over to 2.18. Now when we read the prophets, oftentimes we kind of get lost in all the judgment and we kind of lose the message of salvation, but it is everywhere. And we're only going to look at a few main verses here. So he announces here salvation, 2.18, right from the beginning. He, he levels the accusation, the sin that and their guilt, but then he goes on and says... Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Listen to this verse here, 30 verse 18. You don't have to turn there. The Lord waits. He waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice or righteous. He's a righteous God. Blessed are those who wait for him. You know, in all this judgment, the people were to be convicted of their sin, of trusting in other things, and then they were to trust him. What else could you build an earthly and eternal life on? God himself said in 28.16, I am the one who was laid as a foundation in Zion, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. What they needed to remember and what we need to remember today and believe is what 30.15 says, 
in returning or repentance, in returning to the Lord and resting on Him, you shall be saved. That's why he goes on and says the next verse, which our family is memorizing, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That's all they needed to remember. In returning to the Lord and resting on Him, you shall be saved. In quietness, therefore, and in trust shall be your strength. You know who this foundation and this cornerstone would be? It would be the anointed one, the Messiah, the one on whom all God's people could trust in and lean upon. And this was Jesus, who would rule like no other, who would be a king like no other. So while God said he was going to level the forests, so to speak, he also said there would be one who would rise up from the kingly line. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. God speaks of Christ as a branch coming up from the lineage or the stump of David's father, that is Jesse. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. And then look at, just go ahead and track down, look at all the attributes of his reign that are detailed for us. And he wants us all to know, as we are all tempted to ally ourselves with other things, what would control him? Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord. What would be his delight? Verse 3, the fear of the Lord. What would mark his reign? Righteousness and faithfulness. There it is in 1 through 5. And out of his mouth, it says in chapter 2, verse 3, would come God's law. This king is the dawning of light. Forget allying with Ahaz or Assyria or Egypt. Forget trusting in ourselves and our own pride or the things of the world. If we want security, rest, and refuge, we are to look to the light of Christ. For him beams salvation. So go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Right, keep in mind this is a dark backdrop here that we've already presented there. But look what he says here, this bright beam of hope. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt two uh, tribes of Jerusalem or uh, of Israel. They're the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, in one day, looking forward 700 years, in one day, in the latter time, he has made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Look there in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, speaking in relation to his relationship with his people. There he'll be known as the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. So here the king wages war on the cross. He rules over the universe. He rises again, defeating sin and death and the devil. And Isaiah chapter 25 verse 8 says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. This is God's grace lighting up the nations. You guys remember how, how God said he was going to light a fire signal whistling for the nations to come and judge? 
Well, in Christ, God lights up another signal, the signal of salvation. And who would go on and inquire of him in repentance and faith? He says there, the nations, the people of the whole entire world. So in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, you can go ahead and turn there. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, all of him the nation shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Verse uh, chapter 19 of... Sorry, chapter 19, verse 24. In that day Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria and blessing in the midst of the earth from whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be my be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. Praise God that just as God's judgment knows no partiality, so his salvation knows none either. Everyone can be saved. In Christ the King, if they repent and trust and ally themselves with Him. The question for us today is, are we actually doing that? What are you allying yourself with? How long do you have to go on, which I'm sure you have known, thinking about what hopes you've placed your great hope in, your strength in, only to see that at some point in time they always fail? Your own health? Pleasure? How many times have you been let down after the quick instance of gratification, supposed gratification? Money. What good will that do when you are brought low with illness? And what will all of these things that we put our hope in do for us when we face this holy God? The great and marvelous thing is just as that God judges, that same God extends his salvation to all who repent and believe. And so he calls us to indeed repent. And believe. Be allied with Christ the King, who not only judges, but saves. To conclude, the question for us, once again, is are we allied to this King? In Christ, all these kingly prophecies come true. Christ is of the line of David in Matthew 1. Christ, at the start of his ministry, did the incredibly, walks into a synagogue and declares, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Fulfilling Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 61. To Christ all the peoples of the world would stream. At his birth it was the wise men. And at his cross it is all the nations. And it is this Christ who not only reigns but through his suffering by his substitutionary death on the cross. As he bears all the wrath that we rightly deserve. He saves. Friends, look to Christ. Repent and trust. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 33 verse 17. It says there that in turning to Christ, your eyes will behold the King in His beauty. And look there at 22, what it says of all those who would indeed behold the beauty, the majesty of this great King. Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. And it doesn't bring about fear. It brings about a great proclamation of salvation. He will save us. Now turn back to Isaiah chapter 12. This is the last flipping you'll have to do today. For the Christian, praise God that this happens because of God's grace and His mercy. And it says there in verse 1, and verse one, you will say in that day, Friends, it is awesome that we know a taste of salvation. 
as he is going to consummate his kingdom. And we know that in that day, everything will be made right in Christ. And we experience the end times. We experience that now. So what I want to do right here to close at least the sermon is I want us to have a congregational reading. So if you are a believer, I call you to read with me, proclaim with me here uh, this great song of praise there that ends in verse 2. So I already read, you will say in that day, and we recognize that we experience the end times blessings now. Let's just start together and read and proclaim together the salvation that we have in Christ there with I will give thanks. Let's read together. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a great salvation we have because what a great Savior we have. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in Christ you bore the penalty that we deserved. And so, therefore, judgment has been turned away. Judgment has been absorbed. And you, therefore, are satisfied. And so, therefore, Lord Jesus, we know that those you come to save, you come in comfort. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the only righteous God who judges. And we pray that you are the only powerful God who can save through your own very blood. Lord, we pray that knowing these truths would help us to repent of our sin. But then at the same time, repent knowing that indeed you accept and embrace all those who would turn. And because you love us. Father, you say that you lavish your love upon us. We say that we recognize that it is because of your love that you sent Christ to die on the cross in order that you might wake, make a way and blaze a path to Christ for every sinner who would repent and believe. So Lord, we pray that we would always rejoice in the salvation that you have won for us as you are our powerful King. In your name we pray. Amen.